Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I think we are ready to go. And uh, first of all, uh, welcome to Rick Doner, who's our speaker this year. But before I introduce him, let me just explain the background to this series of lectures, the Gillam lectures, which uh, are related to the Gillam chair, which is held by John Seidel, um, who is here, um, and were named um, in honour of Sir Patrick Gillam, I'm delighted to see Pat and Diana Gillam here this evening, uh, who was uh, for many years chairman of Standard Chartered, and when he retired from Standard Chartered, Pat, who is an alum of the LSE, uh, somehow uh, organised that the bank would endow a chair in his name and a series of lectures. And that has allowed us to expand our interest, particularly in Southeast Asia, which is John Seidel's uh, area of principal interest. But the lectures have, in fact, covered uh, a broad space of territory, really, from uh, India and China. Uh, but this evening, we are back in Southeast Asia, which is uh, John's stamping ground, and, of course, which is a very important part of the world for Standard Chartered. Those who don't know Standard Chartered, it is a British bank, uh, but you would hardly guess that if you lived in the UK, because its operations are primarily in Asia and in Africa. And Rick Doner this evening is going to talk, as you will see, uh, about the challenges of sustaining growth in Southeast Asia. Uh, he is a professor of political science at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, but was educated uh, both at the LSE, uh, where he gained an MSc in international relations, um, but also uh, both at Stanford, which is one of my alma maters, and indeed at Berkeley. And for those of you who don't know that part of the world, this is a little bit like saying that you were educated at both the LSE and King's. Um, which makes you somewhat schizophrenic uh, as far as the Bay Area is concerned, since they're the great rival universities uh, around the Bay. Uh, he's written extensively on Southeast Asia, but also on East Asia more generally, has written about uh, Thailand, uh, has written about Japanese firms in Southeast uh, Asia, uh, and uh, could not be, we couldn't have a more authoritative voice uh, to tell us about the prospects for growth in Southeast Asia today. So, Rick, over to you. Um, first of all, I want to thank uh, Sir Patrick for uh, making this possible, the London School of Economics, um, the committee, John, uh, for inviting me. It's an honor to be here in light of the series commitment to raising new, uh, new perspectives in light of the number of people, eminent people who have come before me in this series. And finally, in light of the longstanding strength, uh, strengths of the LSE, as well as other institutions in the UK with regard to East Asia uh, and political economy. Um, uh, as was mentioned, I studied many, many, many years ago um, at the, I studied international relations at the LSE and took courses at SOAS. Um, debate over the Vietnam War made that period a turbulent but fascinating period um, to study international relations in East Asia. And one of the things that I, I recall with tremendous gratitude 
was the even-handed, thoughtful, and constructive approach to international and domestic conflict that I found in courses by Dr. Carol Bell at the LSE and Stuart Schramm on Chinese politics. This was not an easy time to teach um, international relations and conflict. In this talk, my specific, focus is, my specific focus is on Southeast Asia. And today, of course, Southeast Asia is not the site of widespread conflict among countries as it was in the 60s and, and, and mid-70s. Since the early 1990s, it has become known for its dynamic economic growth. And as many of you know, in the early 1990s, the World Bank included four of the region's countries, Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, and the Philippines, among its group of high-performing Asian economies. And now Vietnam, which has achieved annual growth rates of around 7%, has joined this group of little tigers. Um, Southeast Asia's consistent growth over several decades is pretty impressive in light of its experiencing a number of crises. The 1980s debt crisis, it was ground zero for 1997 financial crisis, obviously, um, et cetera. And with minor exceptions, the region has rebounded quite well from these crises. Um, and I want to especially emphasize the, 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 the reaction or the recovery from the 1997 crisis, which involved um, uh, strengthening of, internet, of, of institutional capacities for monitoring and managing the increasing financial liberalization of the region. The, the region also recovered from the 97 crisis in part through its export dynamism. Um, and I apologize for this very crowded uh, uh, table, this slide, but as you'll see, the GDP growth from Malaysia and Thailand, which are the two countries that I'm going to focus on here, is quite impressive, quite, quite consistent. Per capita income growth, for example, in, Malay in, in Thailand went from $317 to over $2,500. Exports have grown consistently um, and impressively. Manufacturing has increased as a percentage of the overall economies. Um, and high-tech has become, mid and high-tech industries have become increasingly important in the exports uh, of these countries. The question now, of course, is whether these countries will be able to recover from the present crisis in a sustained way. The crisis did not obviously originate from these, the way it did in 97 from these countries' institutional weaknesses in terms of monitoring financial transactions. But it is nevertheless quite serious as a challenge because it has reduced the core export markets of these countries to, on which they rely tremendously. And it also threatens the investment that they have relied on quite extensively. This, of course, was of great concern to the World Bank and the IMF. The Deputy Managing Director of the IMF in May 2009 concluded that Asia's growth deceleration had been sharper than in any other region, with GDP in Asia excluding China and India, falling by almost 15%. And this contraction, he argued, was the result of the region's, quote, integration with the world economy. Of course, that integration was precisely what was always encouraged by the IMF. Only three months later, The Economist magazine trumpeted, quote, Asia's astounding rebound. And it highlighted the 10% average growth of the region's emerging economies. As the, as, as the Economist noted, 
the recovery owed much to exp expansionary fiscal and monetary policies. But again, can the rebound last? For the economists, the answer really depends on macroeconomic stabilization, and especially whether the countries can keep growing without their expansionary policies fueling asset price bubbles. Doing this may require letting exchange rates rise, but as the magazine noted, this will hurt exports, and exports are very, very key to the region's growth. Um, in fact, if you notice here, uh, exports as a percentage of, uh, of GDP, if you especially Thailand, is quite significant. Exports as a percentage of GDP in, in 1996 were about 39%. They're now almost three quarters of GDP in Thailand. Malaysia also over 100% because of re-exports. So exports are really key to the growth of, of, this, of these countries. Now, so the economists emphasize macroeconomic uh, ex uh, balance. Others have emphasized the need to reduce external vulnerability on the industrialized markets. The goal here is greater regional integration in trade, capital, and finance. And after all, Southeast Asia now constitutes a market of over 500 million people. China has begun to absorb a lot more and more of the exports uh, of Southeast Asia. Uh, and there has also been an expansion, as many of you know, in, in free trade agreements and extra-regional or ASEAN, Southeast Asian nations, plus Korea, Japan, etc. Now, I don't agree, I don't disagree with, these, with this emphasis on macroeconomics and regional integration. But what I hope to offer to you is a distinctly different, albeit hopefully complementary, perspective, one that focuses more on production and politics. So let me identify the four, the, the basic components of, of my talk, and then I'll, I'll go into them a little bit more deeply. First, it seems to me that the emphasis on macroeconomic policy and regional integration pays too little attention to what some development economists, especially some of those in the World Bank, and as well as, as, well as uh, decision makers in the region have called the middle income trap. The concern is that these countries, and again, I'm gonna focus on the leading ones in Southeast Asia, Malaysia, and Thailand, have begun or have already lost their comparative advantage in labor-intensive goods to low-wage uh, low competitors such as Vietnam, but also lack the technological capacities to compete with higher-wage, higher-productivity rivals, especially with East Asia, next Korea, Taiwan, um, Hong Kong, and Singapore. So this is viewed in the region as a nutcracker-like squeeze from the bottom squeezed by low wage, from the top difficult, there's a ceiling that's difficult to penetrate. So everybody recognizes that the only way out of this is to upgrade their products and processes, and doing so requires improving indigenous technological capacities. So we need to pay attention to production, and as I'm gonna argue, that includes paying attention to local suppliers and labor. The second contention is that, and it may seem obvious, is that doing this, upgrading, improving technology, actually pose tremendous obstacles. It's very difficult. In some ways, greater difficulties than the difficulties that these, that these countries have already encountered. As such, upgrading requires the development of stronger institutions. And let me emphasize, by institutions, I am talking about government, but much more than government. I'm talking about government private sector linkages, 
I'm talking about uh, networks of private firms, I'm talking about universities, research technology organizations, clusters of firms, uh, R&D consortia, etc. The third point involves the difficulty of creating these institutions and that the, the, that the creation of these institutions lies in politics. I'm interested in why political leaders would actually invest scarce funds and other kinds of resources in trying to build up these kinds of institutions whose construction really is quite difficult. Anybody who's ever tried to build a university, a faculty, any kind of organization, a bank, knows that institutional creation requires a lot of patience and time. And the fact is that the middle-income countries that I'm talking about have not done a very good job of this. Um, and um, I suggest that they haven't done a very good job of this because they have not faced tough times. They have not faced difficult threats. Okay? A fourth and related point concerns globalization. I suspect that the particular conditions of these countries' participation in global value chains has reduced pressure on their leaders to develop strong institutions and has undermined their capacity to do so. Now, most critiques of globalization have to do with high entry barriers, that it's difficult to get into these, into uh, automobile or disk drives or whatever it is. My emphasis is a bit different. I want to suggest that two factors characteristic of globalization in these countries has impeded their capacity to upgrade. One is the ability of multinationals to prosper without linkages with the rest of the economy. The other is the growing role of informal labor, including significant numbers of migrant workers. All of this leads into a final point, or rather a concern, and that is one, to my knowledge, that very few people have raised. Um, one of the few is Robert Wade of the London School of Economics. And the concern is that these countries' external integration has outpaced and even perhaps undermined their, the internal integration of their economies with potential political risks. So let me start with a, a, a brief review of some of the development outcomes in these countries. Most people know the positive features uh, of these countries' growth. Both countries have enjoyed impressive income growth rates. Both are successful exporters, as I've shown. In terms of human development indicators, both have done pretty darn well. They've reduced poverty. Their education and health outcomes have improved. Um, at levels consistent with one would expect of their income levels, okay? There's another aspect of their growth which I think really merits tremendous emphasis, and that is the fact that both have altered the sectoral composition of their economies. That is, they have diversified. They have diversified. Both have experienced shifts from agriculture to manufacturing. They have expanded and diversified manufactured exports. Both have increased, as I've mentioned, their medium and high-tech exports. Thailand, to take the one example, is one, if not the world's leading exporters, not just in rice, but in rubber and sugar and cassava and prawns, in, tech, in, in cer certain garment areas, in certain uh, commercial vehicles, one time pickup, pickup trucks, the country's the largest producer in the world, and this rice. Malaysia is extremely impressive in palm oil, uh, obviously in rubber, um, semiconductors and disk drives as well. This is really impressive, and I want to emphasize that this growth and diversification resulted not simply from openness to trade, to technology, to capital flows. 
Equally important in both cases, governments and private sectors have organized explicit interventions to promote non-traditional sectors, ranging from sugar to dish drives to palm oils to tourism. Now, to be sure, not all of these interventions have succeeded. The Malaysian automobile industry is a good example of an abject failure in my view. But many were successful. And these find findings are consistent with the view of Donnie Roderick, who argued that scratching the surface of any non-traditional export success will reveal a range of institution-based interventions, quote, lurking beneath the surface. There are also some, a couple of weaknesses that I want to point out that I'm going to focus on for the rest of the talk. One, which I'll not much focus on here, but return at the end, uh, involves inequality. Income inequality in Malaysia has worsened over time. Thailand has performed better in this area, but Thailand's rural-urban gap has worsened significantly over the past two decades, as has inequality as measured by assets as opposed to income. The second weakness, and the one I want to emphasize here, involves economic upgrading. Um, and upgrading here, I want to emphasize, I want to be specific about what I'm talking about. It involves increasing value-added of products and processes. It involves increase, doing so with increasing local linkages, inputs from indigenous firms. And it involves doing so at global levels of price, quality, and delivery. So by that definition, Thailand's automobile industry is not upgrading uh, because there are, at this point, very, very few local suppliers to the assemblers in Thailand. Okay. Um, now, the question is, how can, we, how can we have this tremendous diversification without the upgrading, without the deepening, as it were? Um, I'm going to talk about that in a second, but I want to show you how they are they're reflected in a number of indicators. One is, uh, these countries continue to uh, exhibit pretty high trade deficits. Uh, tremendous amount of imports of intermediates and capital goods to supply their exports. Um, one expat uh, who I spoke with involved in the development of Thailand's automotive clusters put it, Thailand used to claim to be the, the Detroit of Asia. Now they were presumably, presumably claimed to be the Nagoya of Asia. It's not really the model that one wants to final. But he said, actually, they're not the Detroit or Nagoya of Asia. They're really the Makiladora of Japan. That is, they're the cross-border assembly site, assembly uh, of Japan. Um, so manufacturing, I would argue, in both countries is, a, is better characterized as a combination of capital-intensive manufacturing based on a small number of skilled workers and a larger number of low-wage, relatively unskilled workers. It amounts to the processing of imported intermediates and cap, um, or intermediates produced by local uh, subsidiaries of foreign firms. Second, for both countries, much of the growth in manufacturing has resulted from inputs, increase in labor and capital, not from technology as reflected in total factor productivity. And third, these weaknesses are more broadly reflected in some comparative rankings on science and technology. Um, here is research and development as a percentage of GDP. And what I would like you to know is um, Malaysia and Thailand, Malaysia third from the top, from the bottom, Thailand, basically 0.2% um, for Malaysia up to, up to almost 1%. Thailand is largely stagnated around 0.2%. Compare that with China at the top, which is almost at 1.5% of GDP. Um, Singapore, 
two and at two point four percent. Korea over three percent. Um, this this is kind of a I'm sorry about this table, but the point I want you to see is to compare the first two rows: the science and technology, human resources per million, and high tech exports. And the point that I think is interesting here is that Thailand has high tech exports are 27% of its manufactured exports. Um, not that much lower than Korea's. Look at the, compare 159 S&T people basically in science and technology per million um, in Thailand versus Korea, uh, over 2,700. So what this shows is that you have essentially a disjuncture between the technology level of the exports and the, te and the technology capacity of the country that's producing or that is yielding those exports. So the point here is, is to sum up so far, is these countries have grown impressively by their diversifying their economies. And this is really a very significant achievement, which I in no way want to minimize. But they have not developed indigenous technological capacities um, at levels commensurate with their income levels. And this is a problem for two reasons. One of the reasons has to do with findings by economists that once countries move into a middle income range, 1,000 to 10,000 GDP, sustaining growth requires moving into a fewer, into fewer um, sectors and, and moving into, and, and doing so uh, with greater technological expertise. In other words, less diversification, more concentration. The second line of thinking, uh, this line of thinking is consistent with a, another line of thinking that I just mentioned, and that is the middle income trap noted earlier. So to continue growing, the argument goes, these countries have to do something different. They'll have to upgrade by becoming more efficient with linkages in a smaller number of sectors. And doing so will, be, will require growing not on the basis of more inputs, labor and capital, but of innovation. Now, it's all fine and good to say, okay, we know what we're supposed to do, let's innovate, let's become more technologically savvy. My argument here is that this is quite difficult. It requires doing different things. It's one thing to diversify, it's another thing to upgrade. It requires that countries become more adept at other kinds of policy tasks. So they have to, they have to move beyond basic education, they have to move into more higher technological edu technical education. They have to provide extension services for firms who are attempting to pr improve products and processes. They have to provide testing and certification services for firms that are trying to penetrate new markets. They need to provide incentives to encourage local firms to invest in R&D, to increase technical training. They have to link firms with universities and research institutions. They have to encourage foreign investment to promote technological spillover. And they have to provide new kinds of infrastructure, whether it's IT, whether it's new kinds of logistics, whether it's even things as prosaic as wastewater treatment for textile firms. Now, what we are talking about here very clearly is industrial policy, albeit what Robert Wade has called it, an open economy industrial policy of a nudging, a government pushing firms into certain areas. These are areas that these countries have fallen short in. And the question is why? Now one answer is that they just don't know, that they're not aware of it, that it's not on the radar screen. This is certainly not the case. 
the bureaucracies, the political leaders, the business folks in these countries have talked about this stuff now for almost two decades. You can go to almost any bureaucracy in Malaysia or Thailand, certainly the Philippines, and probably Indonesia as well, and you will find reams of reports on the need to move into, quote, a knowledge-based economy. It's one of the words. Upgrading knowledge-based economy, let's create clusters. Everybody talks about this. So the problem isn't a lack of awareness, but rather, I would argue, that these are very difficult things to do. It requires a new set of policies and institutions. And there are three things that are especially difficult about the upgrading tasks that I have laid out. One is that they require the active participation of multiple actors. These policies are not stroke of a pen. They are not devaluation. They are not fiscal policies that a minister of finance can say, I'm doing this. It goes way beyond that. So to illustrate a comparative analysis of Southeast Asian firms in big cities uh, found a strong association between innovation activities on the one hand and extra firm cooperation, linkages, among firms, between firms and universities, et cetera. Uh, the study found that Bangkok-based firms ranked lowest on these dimensions. Singaporean firms, not surprisingly, ranked highest. Those in Penang, the Penang state of Malaysia, ranked in the middle. So first, they require a lot of different actors. Second, they require lots of information. And I'm talking here not just about technical information, but about site-specific, nitty-gritty information about how a policy might work in one sector, in one region of the country, or another. And finally, they often involve distributive tensions, that is, they result in short-term losses for some actors and longer-term gains for others. Let me give you an example, um, an illustration, from the realm of foreign investment promotion, in which the goal here is not just, the goal is technology spillovers. As many of you know, the hopeful claim for FDI is that it will bring not only investment funds and market access, but also managerial and technical expertise for local firms. This will, there will be a spillover effect. This often does not happen. When it does, it seems to require a particularly broad and energetic approach to investment promotion, more than is the case uh, in Malaysia and Thailand. Specifically, when it happens, it seems to involve a shift in investment promotion from an emphasis on negative restrictions, that is, if you don't do something, you can't invest to more positive financial invent, uh, incentives and active strategies of matching foreign producers with local suppliers. It requires a shift from a focus on foreign exchange and jobs to outcomes such as human resource development. It requires a shift from a focus on discrete industries like just disk drives or just textiles to the growth of clusters of complementary activities. It requires a shift from a one-size-fits-all approach to investment promotion to a much more nuanced focus on different product areas. And finally, it requires a much greater shift from pre-investment incentives to post-investment monitoring and incentives. Now, consider the difficulties of doing this. First of all, the distributional tensions grow because countries are going to have to forego, in the short term, foreign, foreign exchange growth and job creation for the longer term benefits of technological growth and hopefully sustained job creation. Second, it requires a lot of information. 
tailoring the local investment require, uh, in environment to the needs of global production chains requires an understanding of all kinds of different technological and logistical needs of firms. And the provision of this expertise means that all kinds of new actors have to be involved. It's not just the Board of Investments, it's not just the Finance Ministry, it is consultants, it's universities, it's research institutes, it's business associations. So, if indeed these are more difficult, they require stronger institutions to implement them. And again, by institutions, I'm not talking about governments alone. Governments alone will screw things up. Now what kind of, when we talk about institutional strength, what are we actually talking about? Three things. One is strong institutions have to engage in a lot of consultation among different actors. Second, they have to be able to make credible commitments to punish each other when they do not fulfill commitments and to reward, to reward each other when they do. And lastly, they have to have the ability to monitor each other's, what they actually think, what they do. The East Asian NICs actually have developed, the Koreas, the Taiwans, the Singapores, have developed these capacities. Um, in Malaysia and Thailand, they're in short supply. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. One involves Thailand's Board of Investments, and hopefully there may be some BOI folks here from Thailand. I don't mean to cast aspersions on your efforts. Um, but this is the institution that's responsible for bringing foreign investment in, for providing incentives. Last uh, year I was at a, at a seminar um, on investment promotion and technological change, and a very high BOI official was there, and the official rec uh, acknowledged that they no longer have data on the basic activities of the key investors that they have brought in. And because they have no data, they have no capacity to monitor. Not, not only do they not have data, they don't have the internal human resource capacity to collect the data. Okay? A second case involves one of Thailand's few remaining locally owned auto parts firms capable of supplying original equipment. This firm is Apico. I've been visiting this firm for about 25 years. It's a fascinating place. This is, I think, one if not the only uh, developing country firm that actually manufactures automotive assembly jigs for Mercedes-Benz and a whole host of other automotive assemblers. And it's a great example of upgrading. When I first started visiting this place, they were making small volume jigs for Thailand's very small market. Of course, Thailand is a pretty big automotive market, but in the beginning they made automotive jigs. And the jigs were based on, were basically pretty rudimentary based on manual mechanical clamps, okay? Uh, over time, they shifted into, into hydraulic uh, jigs. Jigs are what uh, set of clamps and things that are used to put different parts of a car or another thing together where you weld and bolt them together. Now they are very high tech in terms of the latest electronics and they've moved from those kinds of jigs. They've expanded to things like um, uh, navigation systems, etc. And it is achieved on this by a conscious effort to reach out, and this is just from their, their own promotion programs, but they're very conscious of being a learning organization. They want to move to advanced design and manufacturing. They want to upgrade tooling. They want to improve their computer assistant engineering, upgrade their parts. And they want to do this, as is mentioned under uh, 1A, through strategic partnerships. They are very savvy about doing this. They've got more strategic partnerships than you can, than you can imagine. 
What's interesting is that, to my knowledge, no official of the Board of Investments, no official of the Ministry of Industry has ever visited Happy Cove to say, let us show, let us understand how you've done this and help to diffuse your lesson. So diffusion of, techno of technology, diffusion of best practices, the argument is, does not happen automatically. It does not happen by market incentives alone. There's a last uh, illustration, and that concerns rubber production. And as some of you may know, Thailand is the largest, now the world's largest exporter, producer and exporter of natural rubber. That's good. The weakness is that 90% of, of the natural rubber that it produces is exported largely unprocessed. That is, there's not much of a downstream sector. Thailand produces condoms, rubber gloves, etc but not nearly as much as it actually Malaysia does. We can talk about that later. Um, and in other words, their downstream the linkages are weak, and Thailand has almost no complementary uh, supporting industries in areas such as tech, such as equipment and other kinds of intermediates. Now, everybody knows this. People have talked about changing this forever. What's the problem? The immediate obstacle is competition between the Ministry of Agriculture, which is responsible for cultivation and improving yields and expanding cultivation of rubber, on the one hand, and the Ministry of Industry, which jealously guards its focus on manufacturing, and the Ministry of Commerce, which is, result, which is responsible for exports. These three ministries typically don't talk to each other. Now, in part, this is because of the usual bureaucratic turf fights that one finds in any organization. But it is exacerbated by Thailand's shifting government coalitions in which ministers are rarely in office for very long. And as a result, their focus is, tends to be not on tough, risky job of coordinating and creating long-term institutions for growth, but on the short-term short benefits, the rents that they can derive for their parties or their factions by virtue of their controlling resources as the head of the Ministry of Agriculture, say, example. So, that of course brings us to the question of politics. Now, one reaction to my rubber example is, of course, what do you expect of politicians? This is exactly the kind of behavior that you expect for, poli for political leaders to engage in. It's the reasons governments should not get involved in trying to promote particular sectors. It's the reason industrial policy fails. It's the reason that government failures are always more significant than market failures. Now, that response is profoundly problematic in my view. Government interventions in many cases with private sector input have indeed succeeded. Indeed, rubber, automobiles, all of these things that they said are the result of discrete interventions. And we can talk about a whole host of other interventions in other parts of the world. But just as often, the interventions do in fact screw up, they fail. So the question is what factors account for the variation in intervention. Why, in some cases, do political leaders invest scarce resources in longer term efforts to build institutions rather than paying off their factions, their cronies, whatever it might be, or, or filling their own pockets? Now, economists' response to this question is, to me is always interesting. One is simply to not answer. Typically, it's, that's not what economists do. Economists can disagree over policy, but the focus is why do you have certain policies, why might they work? And implementation, that's not, that's not our problem. That's one answer. Another answer is, well, 
You build institutions because institutions can generate gains from trade. Everybody should know this, but that begs the question. Why do some political leaders recognize the gain, gains from trade? In other words, why in some cases, to, to, to cite a phrase, do good economics make good politics? Now, there are a couple of answers when pushed. One is individual leadership or intelligence. So in other words, Ferdinand Marcos was, was either dumber, um, was either dumber um, or less of a leader overall than was Lee Kuan Yew, for example. Um, I don't buy this at all. Uh, and we can talk about this afterward if you'd like. Another is to attribute it to culture. Something about Catholicism undermines development. Something about Buddhism undermines development as opposed to Confucianism. So certainly the problem here is that if, if you look at the economic development literature in post-war period, Confucianism was supposed to be the great obstacle to economic growth. And if there was any country that was going to develop, it was, of course, the Philippines, certainly not South Korea. So my answer to this question um, is how to explain this variation is essentially to focus, to, to better specify the political incentives facing leaders. And more specifically, what I uh, want to argue is that a necessary condition for the creation of these institutions is the presence of crisis-like conditions. That is, efforts at upgrading, at creating tough, strong institutions will only be forthcoming in the presence of pervasive, ongoing threats. Now, I want to note that so there's a whole literature on crisis and threats. And I want to note at the outset that this literature is very problematic for a couple of reasons. It's very undeveloped. One is we don't, nobody knows how the mechanisms are supposed to work. If, if, if crises lead to growth, does it happen because it forces political leaders to learn? That's one argument. Another argument is, is crises weaken, quote, old interests and strengthen new, more progressive, more productive interests. That may be true. That's one problem. The second problem with this literature is that there's really differences on whether crisis lead to growth, lead to reform, lead to innovation. Uh, Donnie Roderick, about a century, about a century, getting old here, about a decade <laughs> ago, argued that, quote, if there is one single theme that runs through the length of the political economy literature, it is the idea that crisis is the instigator of growth. Uh, and there's a recent volume on the East Asian crisis edited by John Ravenhill and Greg Noble. The title is Crisis as Catalyst. Now, that's no longer the case. People are no longer so starry-eyed about crisis and growth. We now know that crises have different impacts based on place, time, and type of crisis. And that gets to the third gap, and the one I want to focus on briefly. That is, there's a lot of different kinds of crisis, and they run a continuum. And here's just a, you know, a beginning effort that you can talk about crisis as a rapid onset, short-term exogenous economic shock, the 1997 financial crisis. You can talk about a rapid onset, long-lasting exogenous shock, the 1970s oil, oil shock, um, the global depression of the 30s. You can talk about a gradual onset, internally generated economic problem, the exhaustion of import substitution, or now I would say middle income trap. There are ongoing external security-related 
crisis, such as those faced by South Korea and Taiwan after World War II, or Singapore, I would argue. Um, there are ongoing domestic political threats from popular sectors. And finally, there is a combination of these ongoing security threats, domestic popular unrest, in the presence of a lack of easily obtainable resources with which to address these things. Um, colleagues and I have written on this and we've called this last thing uh, systemic vulnerability. Now, so let me offer a couple of some evidence as to why, as to whether this, this argument works in terms of crisis, this kind of crisis leading to reform and the lack of it leading to a lack of reform in the context of Southeast Asia. So you all know that Southeast Asia suffered from the 1980s debt crisis as much as, as anybody else. Um, Thailand, for example, was forced to borrow over $500 million from the World Bank. It became the world's fifth largest recipient of bank loans at that time. These pressures in both countries stimulated, not surprisingly, important policy and institutional reforms. And one expat economist with long experience in Thailand, Bob Muscat, said, no previous Thai government had been under the kind of severe and sustained economic pressure that now brought the Thai technocrats to the conclusion that a thoroughgoing shift in the economy could no longer be delayed. And in fact, there was very significant moves in both of these countries um, in areas of macroeconomic stabilization, export promotion, and productivity and competitiveness improvement. The last area was basically dropped. Most of the, almost all of the reforms that took place that were quite successful and impressive were macroeconomic stabilization and trade and export promotion. So the question is, what happened? Why didn't they continue? And the argument is that they, is that Malaysia and Thailand benefit from a couple, from, from a couple of, of factors that helped to moderate the crisis. Um, one is that they initially used their resource endowments to moderate balance of payments problems. This was especially important for Malaysia, where new petroleum contracts provided significant revenues. Both benefited significantly from rapidly rising foreign direct investment uh, from Japan and Southeast Asia. 1997, very significant crisis. And of course, the magnitude of the crisis varied. Uh, Malaysia was less hard hit than Thailand and responded with very heterodox policies. Prime Minister Mahathir, as many of you know, abandoned the country's currency peg, but he avoided IMF borrowings, and he imposed capital controls, quite controversial. But Malaysia did not do this alone. Its ability to sustain capital controls and avoid IMF borrowing benefited from the availability of other resources. Domestically, the government was able to, to draw on firms from Petronas, the national oil company, as well as public insurance and other employees' uh, provident fund. Externally, the government was able to draw heavily on Japanese uh, export bank firms, uh, funds. And finally, an important part of the story has to do with the size and the dispensability of Malaysia's foreign workforce. Many of the workers in the worst hit sectors, especially construction, were migrants who, quote, simply left the country in effect Malaysia exported a substantial part of its unemployment, unquote. Thailand was very, was much harder hit. Three million people were pushed into poverty. Country was in a state of insolvency. Contracted the second largest ever IMF support package, 1.7 billion. The government really did take impressive reforms in terms of improving its supervisory capacity in terms of institutional uh, monitoring of financial flows. Um, 
And at the same time, there was a huge effort at this time, and this really kind of knocked everybody out, to improve productivity. They started something called the Industrial Restructuring Program that involved thousands of hours of consultation between government officials, business associations, institutions on productivity, on competitiveness, product design, all the stuff that we've talked about, new kinds of infrastructure. Um, by the year 2000, it was declared a failure and it was dropped. So why, again, was this truncated? Uh, one was the fact that the, the country benefited from devalue, devaluation-induced jump in exports, which I've already showed. This helped improve the balance of payments, etc. Second, as in Malaysia, the country benefited from foreign funds. IMF program, Japan's Miyazawa Fund provided one and a half billion dollars, etc. So, and then lastly, the rural sector. Uh, Thailand's rural sector essentially has provided a labor sink into which unemployed workers, newly redundant workers, can move back to the countryside. And one, and one scholar argues, since 1999, Thai growth has been driven by, quote, the increasing employment of its large reserves of underemployed labor in the rural sectors. So now the challenge, 2008, 2009, 2010, the challenge is, is for both countries to move away from their positions as essentially low-wage, labor-intensive assembly platforms. Now, that ability or their willingness, as I suggested earlier, is undermined by two factors that moderate the pressures, reduces the incentives to move in this direction. The first involves the ability of multinational corporations who dominate, who dominate export-oriented manufacturing their ability to provide technology-related services in-house or at home, rather than as a part of a local collective public effort. In so doing, they avoid contributing to or participating in the provision of services that can benefit the rest of the economy. Now, one response to this concern is that, of course, I mean, what do you expect of multinationals? What's the big deal here? Um, there's variation. That's the problem. In some places, multinationals take the virtuous route. They engage in all kinds of collaborative efforts that do provide services that spill over to the rest of the economy. And in some places, they don't. And let me give an illustration. And, and by the way, I think they, they do or do not, depending in part on the incentives, the monitoring, the credibility that they are exposed to from local governmental and other institutions. And let me give you an example from uh, research that I conducted. I, I co-authored a book with, uh, I co-authored a book on the disbrive industry and why the disbrive industry is so concentrated in Southeast Asia and still has tremendous US presence. And one of the things we did is we spoke to disbrive producers like Seagate and suppliers such as Rewrite, and we said, compare your experiences in Malaysia, in Thailand, Singapore. And their response was basically this. Paraphrase. In Thailand, we keep our heads down. And we do almost everything in-house. We don't collaborate with other firms on R&D. We are not engaged in any supplier development program. When you get involved with the government here in Thailand, things get messy. In Singapore, on the other hand, we participate actively in and benefit from a, government, from a host of government-sponsored research institutes, all kinds of R&D consortium. So, that's, so one question is that multinationals have the option to sustain their, 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 their success by doing stuff in-house. Some places they do, some places they don't. The second factor that I think reduces incentives 
and even capacity to engage in upgrading has to do with these countries' access to large informal labor markets. Um, and the data here is really hard to get. I'm sorry, that went too high. Um, but what you see here is that the informal economy in Thailand accounts for maybe half of GDP. And if you look, and the argument has been made by others that informal labor force is a percentage of the total labor force, maybe as high as 60%. It depends on what you call informality. Uh, but certainly in Malaysia, it's fairly significant as well. Um, Philippines, it's very significant as well. Now, in each of these cases as well, migrant workers seem to constitute a significant part of this informal sector. For Malaysia, official sources estimate that semi and unskilled migrant workers accounted for almost 14% of the manufacturing workforce and 10% in electronics in the year 2000. Um, more recent data are not as clear, but one estimate is that the number of migrant workers maybe accounts for 20% of the labor force. For Thailand, estimates go from one to four million, maybe 5% of the labor force in 2005. Now, the point here is that there's a lot of research that, that points to the negative consequences of informal sectors, especially if they are buttressed by migrant workers. One that is stressed now in a lot of the literature from Malaysia is, to, of course, is that informal workforces depress wages, and as a result, they discourage investment in higher value-added activities and therefore reduce pressure to improve technological skilling. A second consequence is more explicitly political and institutional, and that is informality undermines labor's potential for organizational cohesion and political influence. Now some of you may say, great, all to the good. In fact, this reduces the possibility not just to pressure on employers to raise wages and potentially to invest in productivity measures, <coughs> it also deprives government and business of an interlocutor of a partner with whom to develop these programs. And my argument, my understanding is that the National Trade Union Congress in Singapore plays precisely this role in terms of partnering with government and business to develop these things. Now, I want to add here that research on successful developing countries, especially, and I want to emphasize this, to distinguish this from China, especially countries without large domestic sectors, typically involve, typically highlight the central role of labor in the development process. For the democratic states, the small democratic states, say, of Northern Europe, this role involved an explicit political incorporation. For the more traditionally authoritarian countries of, the East, of East Asia, Singapore, Taiwan, Korea, labor was clearly not politically incorporated. In fact, people were thrown in jail. Labor was repressed, no question. But labor was also a de facto growth partner that benefited from compensatory measures that helped not only foster a consensus on difficult policies, but helped to make that shift more efficient. So let me conclude now. Let me highlight the, some main points. First, challenge of upgrading for middle-income countries are difficult and requires a lot of institutional strengths. Second, the creation of strong institutions is itself difficult. It is a collective action problem. It requires long time horizons, a lot of support from political leaders, um, and commitment of finances that 
typically political leaders would not like to, would rather devote to their own uh, more particularistic goals. Third, in light of the difficulties, leaders will typically only promote technology and upgrading kinds of institutions in the face of a particular kind of crisis, that is, a protracted set of domestic and external threats, along with a lack of resources to meet those threats that pushes them, for, for reasons of political survival, to invest in institutions that, that in turn can sustain the production of exports that can generate revenue that ensure political survival. Fourth, these pressures to upgrade are undermined by two factors, multinationals' lack of engagement, potentially in the provision of public goods, and the, prevents the presence of large informal, unorganized labor forces. Finally, Drawing again on Robert Wade's insight, I want to reiterate the risks of not upgrading, of remaining on a low wage, albeit mid-high-tech assembly trajectory. This kind of trajectory is one that lacks linkages. It is one in which local suppliers are rare, if not absent, and is one in which labor's role is minimal and its position is highly vulnerable. This kind of situation presents two types of risks. One is potential loss of legitimacy, of popular legitimacy for global engagement and potentially for market, for market institutions and the market system overall. And second is what political scientists have emphasized is deinstitutionalization of society. That is, people don't belong to organizations, they have no channels of expressing their interest, of aggregating their interest, et cetera. And as a result, Deinstitutionalization leads to greater difficulty in promoting both equality and sustainability in democratization. Now, this last point is somewhat speculative, but it is consistent with two conclusions that people have made. One is that stable countries need broad public goods, education, health, and welfare, and the only times that you get these broad public goods is when you have well-organized social groups and second is democratization, and here I'm quoting, democratization without well-organized social groups may lead to modes of political competition that promote inefficient policies that are targeted narrow groups at the expense of the poor. So, to put my neck out, the dangers in the midterm is political instability and gridlock and economic inefficiency. So with that rosy prediction, I will stop here and thank you for your patience and your uh, questions. Well, do you want to come back to here and we can sure. take questions from, uh, from here? And, um, I'll open it to up uh, in one second, but let me have the chair's prerogative to uh, ask you. I was recalling that I think it was <coughs> about nine, eight or nine months ago, sitting just here, um, we had the Thai Prime Minister and the Thai Finance Minister, and uh, they were both, one was at, uh, educated at Winchester, one at Eton. Uh, they were both at Oxford. I slightly teased them about being at Oxford rather than the LSE. It actually turned out to my embarrassment that the Prime Minister had in fact been turned down by the LSE, so this wasn't <laughs> such a good joke as it turned out. Um, but you could not have had two more urban, urbane, charming, sophisticated people you could not have uh, imagined. Uh, and then, of course, you have uh, Taksim, 
um, and you talked about the the tension um, between urban and rural incomes and you used the analogy of the urban sector of the rural sector as a sort of bin for, for, for the unemployed I mean how do you see this playing out because taxin uh, however many court cases, rulings there are, I mean, he is a King Charles's head of Thai politics. He just never seems to die. I mean, it, it, how, how, is, how is that going to play out, that urban-rural tension? And how has the economic crisis affected that dynamic? Well, um, some of you may have seen there was a long article on Thailand and the FT today, actually, um, and one one Thai observer was, I think, quoted as saying, Thailand is a tinderbox. I'm not sure if I would go quite that far, but um, a tinderbox. Uh, and I don't know if I would go quite that far, but what is, I, I, I think people generally know the story here, is that Apisit, Prime Minister Apisit, and uh, the groups that he represented largely, as you said, represented Urban, uh, urban interest and have been highly suspicious of rural mobilization, whereas Toxin, Toxin's success, as most, most of you probably know, was really based on his tapping into this question, into this rural-urban gap. Now, I think what's interesting, I would make two points here. Um, one is that is, is the experience of Toxin is interesting in and of itself as kind of a confirmation of some of the points that I was making earlier. When Toxin came into power, he said, not only are we going to do this 30-bot health scheme, we're going to do debt reduction, we're going to do all these things to help the, um, the rural sector, but we are going to upgrade this economy. And we are going to engage in industrial policy, but in the most enlightened kind, in, in, the, in the language that, you know, he brought Michael Porter in, you're going to create clusters, and we're going to create clusters on, in sectors that have already proved <coughs> successful. Automotives, you know, supply chain. Um, food production, textiles, um, um, a couple of other ones. But the point was this, was this was smart and he said, I'm gonna shake up the bureaucracy, I'm gonna do all kinds of things, um, I'm gonna make everybody entrepreneurial. And what's so interesting is the thing flopped, is that that aspect of Toxin's efforts really flopped. And basically it ended up being, uh, he, he reformed the bureaucracy by increasing the number of uh, deputy ministers by a fairly significant amount, basically by creating more opportunities for corruption graft and supporting his own, the, his own factions in his own party and other parties that joined with him. He was able to do that, I, was argue, I would argue, because the success of the exports generated significant funds and the success of prior reforms in macroeconomic supervision allowed him to engage in expansionary activities. And these were really successful, um, and and they were very popular. Uh, I was I spent I started in Thailand in the Peace Corps, and I've gone back to the one village that I've gone that I worked in. And I went back last year and a couple years ago, and I cannot tell you how popular the guy remains because of things that they perceived a that he cared about, and that he actually provided some real good. So the first point is he had, he he talked a lot about upgrading, didn't do anything. In fact, I would say he undermined the bureaucracy and, and de demoralized the bureaucracy. On the other hand, he did things that strengthened his, uh, for the first time, I mean, I can't emphasize, for the first time, he did things that nobody else had ever done, paid attention to the rural areas in terms of public goods, 
public goods, not just giving money to voters during elections, which he did too, but he did that. And so that has remained. That popularity has remained, and Apisit has kind of belatedly tried to start doing some of these things, but really doesn't have the infrastructure to do it, doesn't have the reputation, the street credibility to do that. So what has remained is that the, quote, red shirts, the toxin folks, have remained organized, and I would argue that one more uh, crisis is, will, will tremendously delegitimize Apisit and the present, the present coalition. Um, and will provide greater opportunity for Toxin to come back. Now, it, wouldn't, it may not be Toxin. That, that'll be the interesting question, is who replaces mm -hmm. him? Thank you. Very interesting. Um, I'd like to throw it open now, and there are a couple of uh, roving mics. Uh, Robert Wade, yeah. Rick, that was um, a, a fascinating talk. I want to make uh, two comments. Um, first, the first one actually makes the outlook even darker. Uh, then uh, you left it. Um, and the point I want to make is that you talked of the middle income trap um, with reference to Southeast Asia. Uh, many other middle income countries are in that same trap. I mean, Brazil, uh, uh, I would say, is also, but many others too. Um, and by the way, that trap is not just defined in terms of the technology, the R&D side, which you have emphasized, but also the branding, the marketing side, very difficult for firms in Malaysia, Thailand, um, and elsewhere to get uh, global or even regional brands. Um, but the point I want to make is that this middle income trap is just part of a um, larger pattern where if you um, take um, a, a large number of states and you uh, calculate their average income relative to, say, the average income of the North, um, and trace that those ratios of states, average income relative to that of the North, across time, for example, 1978 to 2000, what you see is a very strong pattern of downward mobility. That is, those ratios are falling over time. Uh, of course, China, and there, there, are, uh, there are exceptions, China's one. But on the whole, there's a strong pattern of downward mobility. That is, the gaps are getting bigger over time. Uh, and so that's the point about the middle income trap just being part of this larger pattern of divergence rather than convergence in terms of global incomes and wealth. Um, the second point I want to make actually sort of runs against what I've just said. You have emphasized throughout very strongly the difficulties of institutional innovation the kinds you're talking about, all, all these difficulties, um, and especially the political difficulties. Well, if you look at Taiwan, which is a country that I've done quite a lot of research on, um, one important innovation that was created early on after 1950 in Taiwan was an industrial extension service, a, analogous to an agricultural extension service. And you actually mentioned this uh, in passing point I want to make is that it's actually quite easy. It's not all that difficult, if you look at the Taiwan case, to create an agricultural extension service, in the, sorry, an industrial extension service. There were, by 1980, about 150 engineers in the Industrial Development Bureau in Taiwan, whose job it was to go out every month, spend several days uh, um, uh, 
a, a month visiting firms in the sector that they were covering and what they were doing was two things they were nudging the firms nudging not forcing nudging them to upgrade to make links with domestic suppliers in the case of subsidiaries of multinationals um, and they were bringing information to those firms about things that were happening outside of Taiwan on the world technology frontier that they might want to know about, or new forms of machine tools, all this kind of thing. They were bringing information right down to the plants. The second thing they were doing was taking information from the plants about production difficulties, marketing difficulties, and aggregating it into the center. The point is, this was all very different from the kind of picking the winners, big scale industrial um, policy projects that all the attention seems to be directed at. Now, um, and the big scale stuff has a very checkered record, um, I mean around the world, including in Britain. But it seems to me that there is quite a lot of scope for this kind of nudging industrial <coughs> policy and that it is quite easy to set it up once it is seen as a, a, a potentially valuable kind of thing to do. Thanks. Um, just a couple points there. Um, um, obviously, I agree with a lot of what you said, I, I, and, but I, keep in mind that I, on terms of dire predictions, I mentioned, I said midterm. And one of the things that I really think is important to keep in mind is the tremendous strengths that these that Southeast Asia derives from its diversification. That probably this this probably from the figures that I've seen, this region, Malaysia, the, the four countries, especially in Vietnam as well, are probably more diversified, which reduces their vulnerability significantly. So that's important. Um, second point having to do with the, the kind of downward mobility. The other part that I would mention here, and this was this is now being recognized more and more by the ties, is volatility in incomes moving in, in and out of the formal sector, having a job, losing a job, um, which makes it very, very difficult to sustain families and raise children. On the question of this extension service, on the one hand, Robert, I would agree with you, this is, I mean, it doesn't require tremendous financial resources. On the other hand, the very unevenness of the efforts to create industrial extension or agricultural extension service suggests that there's some real problems, and I've looked for example, at the Thai and the Malaysian case, in some cases they really do well. And my argument would be that they do well when the sectors are viewed as really critically, are critical, when the performance of the sector is viewed important politically. So you have good um, agricultural extension in rubber, not in others. Um, so the last point, um, so yes, it's easy, but some do it more than others, and I would think that it requires resources. The third point is in terms of extension service, I just for those people, those of you who are looking for careers, I really do think that this question of studying and engaging in agricultural and industrial extension is really where it's at. It's very interesting, it's very important, and there is now literature that's looking at, for example, labor standards. Under what conditions can labor standards be reconciled with really good productivity in firms? And what's emerging from this literature, I find it fascinating, is to highlight the benefits of what is called, in fact, it's what you describe, uh, Robert, a pedagogical approach, as opposed to a de deterrent and punitive approach. That is, extension agents is going into firms and, as opposed to saying, we're going to fine you if you don't do X, to 
you better be careful, we're going to look at you, we're going to monitor you, and here's how we can link you up with other people who've done this well, who can reduce the risks and increase the benefits, and then diffuse. So I think this is a fascinating area of research, and I would encourage you guys to go into it. Thank you. Uh, who's next? Yes, so woman, uh, two rows, but down. Hi. Hi. Um, I had a question about immigration policy um, within, within the Southeast countries and how easy it is for workers to move between countries. Um, and also thinking about outward migration and the threat of things like brain drain, sort of right. workers going to Western countries and how that impacts on um, economic growth. Thanks. Um, the, let me take the second point first. The outward issue I think is an interesting one because it shows the ways in which some countries have done a better job of kind of recruiting and bringing back talent that has left. Um, and you can find Malaysians all over Singapore Valley, uh, Silicon Valley. You can find Thais all over Silicon Valley. Um, obviously you can find Taiwanese, Koreans and Chinese as well, but increasingly there are incentives for those people to come back. The Thais have done a pretty lousy job. I'm less clear on maybe some people who are here from Malaysia can talk about efforts that have been made to bring uh, high-tech folks back. On the question of inward migration, especially of, well, of all skill, Singapore's obviously done a very good job of inward migration of high-tech folks. I mean, you could look at Canada in the same way. Um, the real question is in terms of inward migration of uh, of low-skilled workers, essentially economic refugees, whether they're from Burma, Laos, Cambodia, uh, internal migration, Indonesia into Malaysia. And here, Malaysia has been, has started cracking down much more and has been much, uh, much tougher, but still in the past, it has been very easy to move in, it is very easy to be illegal, and the Thais, basically those borders are quite porous to the extent that the Thais recognize now that they have to register these people. Still, there have been initiatives to limit this migration, and by and large, the lower parts, the lower, lower wage sectors of the economy have protested against any efforts to restrict migration. Yeah, uh, go there, that's right. Um, hi, I really enjoyed your talk. Um, you highlighted in particular the importance of institutions in facilitating the transition to a knowledge-based economy and the role that uh, politics and politicians play in creating those institutions. Um, now, I live in Singapore, and in Singapore, the argument is made that uh, high political salaries produce good governance in that they improve the quality of people who stand for politics. High, pol high salaries? Yes. High political salaries. Yes. yes, high political salaries. And you mean by that by uh, salaries of people in the bureaucracy? Um, in the bureaucracy as well as uh, um, political figures. MPs, okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, in fact, I think there's a stat that says the 30 highest paid politicians in the world are all from Singapore. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and a senior civil servant in Singapore would uh, earn as much as Obama would. Um, now, and, and, and the argument runs as follows. It, um, in addition to in increasing the quality of those who stand for office, it also aligns the incentives of politicians with, with the population by um, increasing the opportunity cost of losing office. Um, do you find 
connection between uh, the composition of the political class and uh, the quality of governance, and how can we improve the quality of office holders? You, between the compensation or the composition of the political class? The uh, composition of the political composition. class. Composition. And how, in a sense, does compensation affect composition? I think compensation. Mm. Um, you know, I don't, I'm not very confident on, on these questions, in part from experience, partly in the Philippines, I guess, but other places. And, you know, when I started doing dissertation on develop, uh, research for my dissertation, the first place I went to, and I worked on the automobile industry, and what was really impressive was that the Philippines had by far the best bureaucrats. Um, they were American educated, they, were, they had MBAs way back then, they understood, they had, the, the first automotive industrial policy in the region was from the Philippines. And the, it was very astute. I mean, it was very well thought out. And it was totally undermined by Marcos. So. The first question is really not necessarily composition or qualifications of officials, but rather to what extent they're supported by political leaders. So I certainly agree that compensation is important, qualifications are important, recruitment and transfer and exposure to all kinds of, I mean the Thais have a huge problem because of bureaucratic turf battles. And my sense is that Singapore, to some degree Malaysia, has done a much better job at rotating officials to give them broader. So all of those are very, very useful, very useful things to do. And compensation is important. There's no question about it. Um, the question is where that comes from. I mean, that's the political question. You could look at this as a public administration question, and you could say, yeah, better compensation, better rotation, all this stuff. I mean, it's all good. It's beside the point as far as I'm concerned. The question is where does it come from? And this, the, the Singapore case, I think, generally bears out if you look at the statements, the biographies, the perspectives of Singaporean leaders in the 60s. Um, well, one of the things that Singapore did is they were, they were scared. I mean, it's very clear they were scared. They were scared that they had no market because they were kicked out of the Malaysian Federation. They had no resources because Britain left in 1971. And if you look at the number of strikes, of days lost to labor unrest in the 60s, it was huge. I mean, there was a fear of kind of a communist left takeover. And, there was a re and one of the things that Singapore did, and this kind of highlights an interesting indicator as far as I'm concerned, Singapore went searching. They screamed. They looked around. They said, who can we model ourselves after? And as many of you know, the country that they decided was the most appropriate for them was Israel. I mean, the head of Israeli public education, they hired him away in the 60s, after, after 65. Now, this is an interesting indicator, because if you ask Koreans, if you ask Japanese, if you ask Chinese now about question of screening, searching, do we look for a model? Yes, of course. Um, I've asked my, Rus my Russian expertise colleagues, does Russia, do, 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 do Russian leaders ever talk about who do we emulate, who can we learn from? They say, no, we're just victims. We're a big country, now we're screwed up, we're victims. Only recently, and I've asked this, I've really probed on this, Thai decision makers, and Malaysian did it for a while. Malaysia was going to be Korea Inc., if you may remember in the 80s, right? We're going to be like Korea. Thais only recently have said, we have to look to, who can we learn from? And you all know that the Japanese were avid, avid learners in the late 19th, early 20th century. So 
long-winded answer kind of goes beyond what your question is, but the real issue is where do good bureaucracies come from? Yeah, guy there, three or four rows back. Thanks very much. Um, how do you see the impact of the, the ASEAN-China FTA on your, your case study countries? Um, the ASEAN-China FTA. The ASEAN-China FTA. One of the big macro trends seems to be the integration of Southeast Asia in, into a wider East Asian uh, economy. Could that go one of two ways? I mean, if I understood you correctly, you said that uh, greater external integration runs a risk of undermining internal integration of the, of the national economy. Is that going to play to the, the trend that you've identified of the, the middle income trap for Malaysia or Thailand? Or could it, could it be a benign, a benign type of crisis that forces the, the upskilling that you, you say um, the countries have to implement? Yeah, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, all I can do is to cite the, what I think, and other people here may have a better sense of this than I do, but I think the, the perspective on China and the region um, is, is complicated and up for debate. So one argument is that, um, is that China will absorb more and more of East Asia's uh, both manufactured exports and raw materials. Um, um, the other argument, so that may all to be to the good. Um, there's another argument that they will, that China will, will largely import raw materials largely unprocessed goods. And by the way, my sense is that from, I've just started studying the rubber industry, that's what's happening in rubber. The Chinese now have emerged to be one of the biggest tire producers and also one of the biggest producers of tire producing equipment. So they're not going to, I mean, that, that market is being increasingly taken away from the Thais and to some degree the Malaysians. Um, will, so will China replacing the manufactured exports uh, of, East, of Southeast Asia lead to this kind of crisis? It, all I can say is th that's where the debate is. Nobody yet knows. And um, in, in rubber, I'm skeptical. I'm concerned about this. Automobiles, I don't know. Um, all I can do is plead somewhat ignorance and that the debate is out there. And the, the question is, um, do they import intermediates only? Um, uh, do they import raw materials only or do they also import intermediates? And do they import increasing sophistication of intermediates or do they only import low-end intermediates? And that's the, the question and I just don't know the answer. No, it was one down here in the second row caught my eye a moment ago. <coughs> Thank you. Uh, Professor Dona, in your talk you focused on Malaysia and Thailand, but looking down the list of countries that you have up there, um, I see some countries which are overtly authoritarian, others which are democracies to a greater or lesser extent. Um, and I wonder, does it matter? What, what, what aspect does democracy, or what impact does democracy, or what difference does democracy have on the different possible outcomes that you, you, you talk about? Um, you did touch on that a bit in your talk, but I wonder if you have more to say about the, the, the relevance of democracy here. Thank you. This in some ways has been the $64 question, as we say in the U.S., for political science scientists. And there's been an extensive literature, most of which is, has come uh, inconclusive. Um, the best literature that I know of uh, is that there are no significant growth differences between democracies and authoritarian regimes, 
but that democracies, by and large, the democracies, obviously democracies are more associated with um, higher levels of development, but that doesn't say what the causal linkages are. Is it democracy that causes higher growth or is it growth that leads to democracy? And there's all kinds of debates about that. So that's one thing. There's also an argument that by and large, democratic regimes, at least in the industrial, the democratic regimes overall are, more, are high, more highly associated with higher technology kinds of growth throughout the world. Um, the differences, the exceptions are the East Asian countries. Now, of course, Korea and Taiwan are now profoundly democratic. Singapore is not, but has certain elements of, of democracy. So my feeling is that the issue is not so much regime type. And in fact, at the end of my talk, I mentioned that if you have democracy without these high levels of institutions, it's dangerous. More pork, more inefficiency, more gridlock. Um, the issue is what kind of interest intermediation consultation do you have? That's what makes the differences among democracies and among authoritarian regimes. There are authoritarian basket cases and there are tremendous authoritarian successes. And it seems to me that what really makes the difference is, um, is this level of consultation and interest, and levels of organization of interest. Thanks. Um, I'm going to take a couple more because we're running up against time. Yeah, guy in the, in the middle with a sort of check shirt and a black pullover. That's it. All right, thank you. I have a question. You talk about internal integration and globalization, and uh, I'd like to ask about the regional integration. How much? About the what? I'm sorry. Regional, regional integration. integration. How much and in what way is the regional integration influence national uh, growth in South Asia? Thank you. Um, well, right now, regional integration I don't think has influenced things a whole lot. I mean, if you look at only now has it become regional integration in terms of goods, right? In terms of goods, uh, um, it hasn't. It, it doesn't account. The last time I looked, for a tremendous level, a very significant uh, of, of exports of goods and services. Yet, it's starting to. Um, so that's one thing, and it's going to increase as a result of AFTA and then other things that have, have moved. But uh, there's a couple of other aspects, in some ways, that I think have been deleterious and are consistent. Deleterious impacts of regional integration. And here I'm talking about the kind of integration of global value chains and um, semiconductors, disk drives, automobiles. Those are three fairly important ones. And there what you see is that the regional integration, both de facto and de jure, has really encouraged tremendous investment. I mean, our, our study of the disk drive industry showed very clearly that it was, I mean, and this was just, it's got to be counted as a great success, as does auto is levels of um, the flexibility in national authorities of either de jure or de facto liberalization um, of exports and imports, essentially free trade regimes, even before an FTA emerged, was critical for the Seagates, for the, for the read rights, for the IBMs to move into disk drives. So what you find are really great regional divisions of labor among these countries, so that in disk drives, you can, for example, um, you know, you can build a re you can build a, a head uh, for a disk drive and a motor in one place and a head in another place and assemble them and still another place within hours, and it's marvelous. I mean, it's a great thing. On the other hand, that does nothing for promotion of suppliers in Thailand, whereas Singapore there are great suppliers um, in automobiles. 
complementarity led by the Japanese but now followed by the United States has been very, very good and the ASEAN countries have been marvelous and AFTA is reinforcing that at facilitating that kind of complementarity. So what you have in automobiles is that regional, is national specialization. Thailand diesel, diesel engines and pickup trucks, Philippines transmissions, um, Indonesia, certain kinds of, of uh, basic utility vehicles, the, I forget the name of it, you all know, um, uh, uh, petroleum engines, that's all great, right? But again, these are multinational-led regional integration schemes. So that's great for generating jobs in foreign exchange. I don't think it addresses the issue that I'm so concerned with here. We had one more that was in the middle there. Yeah, that I think we'll, we'll better stop then. We're going to run up to 8 o'clock. Thanks. Can you say something about the Bumiputra or affirmative action policies in Malaysia and how they affect patterns of investment there? Um, well, I guess there are pros and cons. Um, the, I mean, one of the, I happen to mention rubber, and nobody kind of picked up on this, but the interesting thing about rubber is that um, Malaysia used to be the largest rubber producer in the world. Some of this has to do with British colonial legacies, a long tradition of, of tradition. There's actually a Malaysian rubber research institute right here in London. It's marvelous. 90% um, um, of Malaysia's natural rubber is consumed domestically. They've got a great downstream industry. You go through and you go to Thai rubber producers, they all have Malaysian equipment, kind of basic equipment, but still it's equipment. Um, the question is where did that come from? And I would argue that some of that has to do with the importance of the rural sector, the Bumi, the Malay dominated rural sector in Malaysia, and the emphasis on needing to maintain a vibrant, uh, a vibrant uh, rubber sector. So in some cases it's been quite good. Um, we obviously know that in other cases the Bumi Putra policy has undermined um, efforts at technological upgrading. Um, it has undermined business government relations. Um, it is, I know the automobile industry best, and it has just been a real, I wouldn't say disaster, but a shame. The degree to which um, they were almost going to t take, um, uh, what's the national, the Proton. Proton was eventually going to be spun off to uh, Volkswagen. This was almost a done deal when it would have been really beneficial and it was nixed at the last minute because of not just Bumiputra but the financial, the, the political and financial concerns of UMNO which obviously is linked. So in rural areas I think it's made, I think it's had a real beneficial effect. In manufacturing I think it's been deleterious. Look, I'm sorry we're going to wind up now, but we are at, uh, at 8 o'clock and um, I just want to say we've had a terrific range of questions from democracy, regional trade, the interesting question about compensation. I would just say from uh, my own past experience that the most highly paid financial regulators in the world are in Singapore, in the developed world, and the least highly paid are in the United States. I don't know if that brings any kind of thoughts to your mind uh, at all. But um, uh, let me thank you for a fascinating talk, uh, in spite of the references to Robert Wade, which is uh, <laughs> a bit doubtful here. But um, uh, apart from that, it was absolutely uh, terrific. And as you could see from the range of questions, stimulated a lot of thank thinking. You for thank you so much for coming. Much.